This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we hear the voice of Zephaniah as he warns the kingdom of Judah of impending judgment. Continuing our journey through the prophets. Let's see, we are set, this is number seven, seven prophets in. We had four pre-Syrian prophets. We had a couple of Syrian prophets, Jonah and Nahum. So we walked through that period of history before anything was going wrong, pre-Assyrian period. We, uh, you know, everything's going great, adding house to house, field to field, uh, great economy, everything going wonderful, or at least so it seems. And God starts sending warning. This isn't going well because you're building all of this, uh, not just wealth, but you're building all of this security and all of this empire on the backs of people. And God says, this upsets me. And so he sends four pre-Assyrian prophets to speak warning to his people. Since two, two to Israel. What was the first one we looked at, Brent? The first prophet? Yes. That would be Amos. Amos. What was his image? He said every prophet had an image that carries the day. What, is, what, was, what was his image? Well, a plumb line and or ripe fruit. Okay. So we got a basket of ripe fruit. We got a plumb line. And Amos is big. Uh, man, just really straightforward for him. You take advantage of the poor. You are building this wonderful, wor- this wonderful world of yours. Uh, you're building all this security, this comfort, this luxury, this le- this leisure, all of your greed. Uh, you're taking advantage of the marginalized. You're taking advantage of the people on the outside, and this is not good. And so, and as we've been wandering through here, Marty has created kind of a false dichotomy. We're trying to pick between source A and source B, and really it's a false choice. But just for the sake of critical thinking as we wander through the prophets, uh, I suggested that I know when I was taught about the prophets, I was really given a really heavy dose of idolatry. Their problem was they were worshiping the wrong gods. And so I've said, I want to keep my eye open for that. I want to see if this is really about idolatry or if this is about people. And, uh, and so Amos was pretty straightforward. We have an injustice problem, we said. And then next prophet was what, Brent? Hosea. Hosea. These are the two guys that God sent to which group? To Israel. To Israel. And Hosea had the image of? A prostitute. Prostitute. He marries Gomer, and his life tells a story, living theater, if you will. And uh, and that one was kind of a little bit more sourcé, because it was a little bit more like, uh, you betrayed me, God says. That has... That definitely had ramifications on the way we treat people. But the thrust of that prophet is not so much source B as it is source A. God's saying, I'm your lover. I'm the God you're supposed to have a covenant relationship with. And you have prostituted yourselves to other gods. Uh, And then we had two prophets to Judah. First prophet to Judah, Brent. We had Micah. Micah. What was his image? The image of a judge. Judge. Like God was coming to judge uh, his people. And so Judah also got a warning. uh, And Micah laid it out. Micah had some things to say about idols, but Micah also had a lot of things to say about justice. And the two kind of got blended together. And that's where we kind of pointed out. We really have ourselves a false a false choice here, a false dichotomy I've set up because the one plays into the other and the other plays into the one. And when we see that, I just want to really raise the question, is idolatry the wrong or is it what idolatry causes uh, that is the problem? Is idolatry what angers God because you've got your God worshiping correct or is it the fact that you have your God worship incorrect that causes you to treat people 
uh, inappropriately. It causes you to abuse those on the outside, causes you to oppress others, because these other God stories are built on a different narrative. They're built on a narrative of fear and self-preservation versus self-sacrifice. And as I read the story, and as I want to suggest to my my listeners, I think things are immoral, not because they're inherently just uh, wrong. Things are immoral because of what the impact it has on people. Um, not just this arbitrary system that God set up about morality, but morality is the product of of the impact of choices and systems on other people. Um, so that's what we've been trying to look at as we wandered through there. So that was Micah, and then there was another one to first, uh, or there was another one to uh, ruin my punchline. Oh, trying there. to give it away. First Isaiah. <laughs> first Isaiah. That was the other one to Judah in the pre-Assyrian period. And, um, and, and what was the image for first Isaiah? The image of a vineyard. Vineyard. And God was really, again, kind of like Amos, really straightforward. Like there was maybe a reference or two to idolatry in Isaiah 1 through 11, 1 through 12. Uh, but it was by and large, it was about justice and it was about God coming to look for the Zedekah and what did he find instead? Zedekah. Zedekah. And so that was a pre-Assyrian. Now, uh, we also learned in the pre-Assyrian time period that it's not all hopeless because in fact, you can listen to the warnings and you can change your ways and it does matter, right? Certainly. Okay. We had a king in Judah. His name was? Uh... Hezekiah. Hezekiah. And he led this charge of reforms. And he he did help the people of God listen to the warnings. And they did change their way. And God did save them from the kingdom of? Of Assyria. Assyria. Putting you on the spot with a lot of questions today. Well, we're in the Assyrian prophets. That one wasn't too bad. Yeah, it's not too bad. I always want to, whenever we're talking about Hezekiah, I always want to say Jeroboam or something. Yeah. Yeah. So we we moved from there into the Assyrian time period because Assyria did end up coming, just like God said uh, that they would. And Israel uh, seemed to have a hard time repenting, and so they felt the consequences of those those decisions. And Judah, they, at that point in time, uh, tried their best to repent and change their ways. And God rescued them from the Assyrians. And it was... I mean, really, if you really trust the biblical history here, it's miraculous, practically, uh, how this little nation of Judah gets spared from the Assyrians. And uh, But God sent messages during that time period. First of all, you got Israel lying in ruins, and so God sent Jonah, and his image was, what did we say that one was? Kind of a concept. Um, potential. Potential, right. Kind of all, I just realized, all the Assyrian prophets are going to be concepts and not really pictures, but... Interesting how that worked out. Uh, Jonah was about potential. He had a contemporary, uh, Nahum, and what was his image? Dean. Dean, which we Dean. said was uh, to to judge or to justice rather in the uh, in the retributive way. Right, because most of biblical justice that we've been talking about is the word mishpat. Mishpat. We even had that in the Hosea passage that we've memorized now. Uh, Verstik olam verstik libzadek uva mishpat. I will betroth to myself in righteousness and in justice. So we're usually talking about mishpat justice, which is not retributive, but distributive. Distributive, putting so everything right in its right place. Right, it's restorative justice. But Dean is what Nahum speaks of because sometimes restorative justice does entail some form of retributive justice. Um, something has to be stopped. Something has to be ended in order for restoration to happen. And that's what we see in, in Nahum. So for all of Israel who listens to the message of Jonah and thinks, great, so God's not going to do anything about our enemies. 
On the other hand, they hold the prophet Nahum, and they, they learn that no God is in fact going to do something about evil. He is going to do something about evil in the world. At the same time, uh, Judah, Brent, have they been flying high? Uh, well, they're, they're ready for uh, their next round of warning. <laughs> yeah, they have kind of fallen apart since the days of Hezekiah. Uh, uh, Ammon and Manasseh come after him, and they just, boy, this story heads south in a hurry. And so God sends them two more prophets, uh, two more words of warning to let them know, hey, God might have stayed his hand the last time, but if we really can't hold this thing together, don't think God's going to save you forever. And so we pick up there. Uh, we got two prophets we're going to go uh, through. Today we're going to talk about uh, Zephaniah, Zephaniah. So um, let's talk about his image first before we jump in here. Nope, no um, presentation today. Presentation, all the presentation you need is to grab that trusty old Bible of yours. We're going to read through the whole page and a half prophet of Zephaniah. Um, the whole thing, we will. I shouldn't say that, about two and a half, almost three pages. Um Zephaniah, let's talk about his image first and get that out of the way. It's, again, not really an image as much as it is a concept, just like potential, just like Dean. For Zephaniah, our word is going to be another Hebrew word. It's going to be the word shuva. And shuva is a word that when you translate it, comes out repent. That's one of those Christian words that we have so much baggage and stigma that surrounds the idea of repent. Uh, that we, we really don't even think about what the word even means to begin with. So unpacking that a little bit might be a little helpful. The word repent means to, uh, can you remember, Brent, what does it mean? To return. Return. A lot of people will say turn, which isn't incorrect at all. In fact, the root word of teshuva, uh, shuva or shuv, um, is to turn. Uh, I remember a lot of people, including my teacher, explaining shuva, repent, as to make a U-turn, which is even better than to turn. Some people just say to turn. It's not necessarily incorrect, but I definitely think it's incomplete. To make a U-turn is better, but really to understand the word and its true etymology and its true usage in biblical Hebrew is to understand the idea of just what you said, to return, uh, which I love that because when we say repent, we're often telling people, you're a lousy sinner, change the way you are and become righteous. But the word repent in and of itself even speaks to our Genesis 1 theme, because we said that all of creation was what, Brent? Was good. Good. Like our reference point is not utter depravity. Our starting point, the essence of this creation is not brokenness. The essence and the starting point of this creation was wholeness, shalom, goodness. And and we believe that humanity is rooted in that uh that understanding. And so shuva speaks even more toward that. You can't return to something unless you started at that place. So there is a path that God designed each of us to walk. Not just God has a wonderful plan for your life, but beyond that, like humanity itself is designed to function a particular kind of way. Humanity is designed to carry the image of God. Humanity is designed to to trust the story. Humanity is designed to be merciful and compassionate and loving. Like there is there is a a right way, a true way, a path that we're supposed to walk, and we stray off of that. And the call is to come back to that original design. There is something that is more true. When we stray off of that path, we're being less true to ourselves. We're being less human. We're, we're giving the world a less accurate picture of who it is that we really, truly are, which I think is a radical change in 
thinking. That's why I like to sit here and camp for a while on just the idea of shuva. Because I think if we were to ask most of us, what's the true you? Is the true you, is the true ben, Brent Billings, the one who operates as God designed him to operate? Or is the true Brent Billings the one that screws up? I think most of us would say what, Brent? Well... I I'm I screw up all the time, so that's what I am. Right? right, right. And we and we worked so hard through session one in Torah to try to deconstruct that and unwind that. We pointed out the patriarchs and the family of God had an ability to not see their life that way because the true Brent Billings, the most true Brent Billings. I'm using you because I don't I don't have this problem at all. But uh, the true Brent Billings is one that. Uh, that, that operates according to his design. That's the truest true uh, part of you. And the word shuva tells us that because it says, come back, come back to your truest self. Come back to that thing that you are actually designed to be, uh, not the thing that you think you are because of all your failures. And so that's shuva. And Zephaniah is going to have, and we could even say Micah had it, but Micah had the image of a judge. So we did that. Um, but Zephaniah has this message for God's people in Judah. Come back. Uh, come back to the path that you were walking when Hezekiah restored the people of Judah. Come back to the story that God originally called you to. Come back to your calling of priesthood to be uh, at the crossroads of the earth and a kingdom of priests to help God put the world. Come back. Come back. Come back. So with that, we're going to jump in. Zephaniah. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal and the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and also who swear by Molech. That's a big deal. So who is one of the first groups that Zephaniah starts pointing out here for woe and condemnation? Uh, Judah. Yeah, Judah, and even more specifically, and even more specifically, Mm, kind of priests. Yeah, it goes from Judah to Jerusalem to specifically the priests. And it says that these religious leaders, the people that remember the role of priesthood to help people navigate their atonement, to intercede on their behalf, uh, to put God on display, they're actually engaging in Molech. Can you remember Molech? What is Molech, right? Really bad. Yeah, it was the God that that what the you sacrifice babies to yeah it's a it's an evolution of the phoenician baals mm. molech is uh they actually set up we're told in prophetic history that the valley outside of jerusalem the priests would actually uh the valley that we know of as ben Hanom, or in the greek gehenna the word we translate hell that valley outside of jerusalem the prophets told us that the priests in jerusalem set up in that valley uh kind of like a, a molech sacrificial center like they were sacrificing their children to the fires of molech in the valley outside of jerusalem and so zephaniah is one of the first priests we read to really start to go after this we're going to read more about it later especially in jeremiah um because it definitely has some things to say in fact that's why it becomes the trash dump 
the garbage heap that it becomes in history is because God says, I'm so sick of what you're doing in the Valley of Hinnom. This is what I'm going to do. But that will be in Jeremiah. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Zephaniah. Uh, you swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Okay, so in that little intro there, we definitely had both source A and source B. There's definitely chatter about idolatry, without a doubt. Uh, We start off here, Zephaniah, playing very strongly uh, on the whole, you're worshiping idols, you're worshiping Molech. Now, even Molech is a great, wonderful example of how these two things are inseparable. If you're worshiping Molech, is the tragedy that you've gotten your doctrine wrong, or is the tragedy that you're sacrificing children in the fire? That's a wonderful example how the two, you can't pull the two apart. Well, and even then, I think it, most people would say there's a weightier yeah. situation there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, see, I'm in verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry, excuse me, in verse 9 there, the reason I brought that up is the violence and deceit. Uh, that's definitely source B. So this idolatry gets mixed with violence and deceit. And this is uh, the larger conversation going on here. Verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter. And with a loud crash from the hills, wait, wail, you who live in the market district, all you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish those who are complacent who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their homes demolished. They will build homes but not live in them. They will plant vineyards and not drink their wine. Common prophetic image there, this idea of building homes but not living in them, planting vineyards but not drinking, having to work but for somebody else. Interesting because as they've built empire, that's what the foreigners are doing for them. They're working but not enjoying the fruit of their labor. Uh... And they've been taking advantage of others in that same way. So now it turns back on them. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry, so Zephaniah is sending out this warning. This is what you've been doing wrong, and the day of the Lord is right on your threshold. Don't think that just because Hezekiah saved the day, it's not sitting right there about ready to overtake you. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them. On the day of the Lord's wrath and the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on earth. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So there's a uh, there's that call to Shuvah. Come back, 
to what you were supposed to be doing. And Zephaniah seems to say, boy, I tell you, we're headed down a really destructive road and destruction just lies on our doorstep, a day of wrath and destruction, a day of punishment. But for all of you who want to live rightly, boy, seek humility, seek justice, and maybe, just maybe you won't have to endure. It's this call. Make sure you come back home to your original design. But now Zephaniah is going to turn his attention. Uh, That was kind of the initial warning. And now he turns his attention to the whole world. Because what is the kingdom that's waiting on the doorstep now, Brent? Uh, This time it is Babylon. Babylon. And what are they going to do to everybody? They're going to wipe everybody out. Right. And nobody's going to be left. And so you you see Zephaniah kind of turn, turn his attention from, you guys have got to come back to, all right, here's what's waiting. Here's what's coming. And uh, go ahead and pick up there, and uh, I'll probably stop you as we read through here. So, chapter 2, verse 4. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you, and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. Okay, so uh, Zephaniah starts looking around at Israel's neighbors. Very similar to, I think, how what Amos did. Amos started his prophecy by kind of pointing out judgment on all of the neighbors before turning his attention solely on the people of God. And Zephaniah does something very, very similar here. He starts with Philistia which uh, I think we even had a map in one of our past, you know, just showed all the neighbors. Philistia is that neighbor to the Gaza. Philistia is that neighbor to the southwest of Israel. And uh, and so he's, he's, he's moving from there, talking about the, the Philistines. This is not God's people. Philistines are not God's people. Uh, but Babylon is going to lay waste to everybody because of how they're treating everyone else. Like the, it's like the whole world is built, bent on self-security, and God can't stand it. And so now he's going to turn his attention to the neighbors to their southeast. Go ahead and pick up where you left off. Well, before we go on, so the remnant of Judah that he refers to, mm-hmm. is that the remnant that's coming like hundreds of years later when they return from Babylon? Or is he talking about people who are going to end up being left in the land when Babylon comes through? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good conversation. I would think one of our best options, and I would think one of the only ways to read that really accurately, and again, you could put Zephaniah with a much later authorship, and that might change the conversation a little bit. But I think it's it's alluding to this later day when after Babylon, uh, Gaza and Philistia is going to belong to the people of God, which is kind of tricky because historically, I'm not sure we really say that that is necessarily what happens, but it's definitely what the prophet is foretelling. He's telling those people of Philistia, you think you're so strong and mighty. You think you've got such a wonderful land. You're about ready to lose it all. But yeah, I think that remnant is going to be that later historical remnant of the people of God that aren't there yet in the book of Zephaniah. All right, verse 8. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites, who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. 
the survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. You Cushites too will be slain by my sword. All right, so here Zephaniah goes, and he's just pointing out these neighbors, points out Philistia, points out Moab, points out Ammon, points out Cush. And one of the things as we go through here that I love to point out is if this were truly just source A, if the, if the issue here was purely about idolatry, condemning the pagan nations is really easy because they all worship the wrong gods. Like if that's the sole issue here, as God condemns all these pagan nations, it should be, well, woe to you, Gaza, because you have the wrong God. And woe to you, Moab, because you have the wrong God. And woe to you, but that's not what God talks about. God talks about pride. God talks about haughtiness. Uh, God talks about the way they take care of, uh, or the way they don't take care of other people. They take advantage of other people, plunder, um, fortunes, building their empires, their wealth on the backs of other people. And so even as we look at the neighbors, it seems that God's concern, even with the pagan nations, is the same concern that he has with his own people. And it's not what their God worship is. It's what they do to others. That's the problem. Go ahead and keep going. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. So Zephaniah definitely is just saying there's nobody that's going to escape this. Babylon is coming. You can hear it in the distance. And everybody is going to end up falling to this new threat. Philistia is going to fall. Moab is going to fall. Ammon's going to fall. Cush is going to fall. Assyria is even going to fall. The once mighty Assyria that came exactly. sweeping through the land. Yep. And Zephaniah says, boy, you guys don't even know what's coming. Um, or maybe you do. Maybe you have a sense. And Zephaniah just says it. But there's also going to be that same group that gets swept up in it that we started with. And that's going to be the people of who, Brent? Uh, the people of Israel. Yeah. Or more appropriately, maybe. Israel's now been conquered and destroyed. Yeah. So people of Judah. Judah. Right. People oh, of Judah, oh, oh. Southern yes. Kingdom, right? Right. Northern Kingdom is no more. So the people of Judah are on the list too. They're not going to escape. They're just going to be like Assyria. They're just going to be like Cush. They're just going to be like Moab and Ammon and Philistia. Well, they're, right, the they're right in the middle of everything. They're right in the middle of everything. Now, we've also seen you can be right in the middle of everything. You can shuva, and you can actually be saved. That's not going to be the case. Go ahead and keep reading. Zephaniah hopes it will be the case, though. Listen to this. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves, who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. So there's this uh, 
condemnation of the people of Judah, particularly the city of Jerusalem, the leadership of the people of Judah. And Zephaniah says that they're just as bad as anybody around them. And and the problem here is that the Lord that they serve, the Lord God, is a God who cares about justice and righteousness. And so he's going to do something. Go ahead and keep going. I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. Okay, so now God says, well, so I laid waste to all the nations. Like I thought, God says, I thought for sure that my own people would see this and they would shuva. They would, I mean, obviously, I mean, come on, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I'm about? Don't you know? So I'll, I'll do my thing. My people will see it and they'll understand. But that's not what happens. Go ahead and keep going. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Okay, so God's assertion is, I'm going to pour out wrath, and I'm doing this because that is the process that's going to help purify my people. That is the process that's going to get us back on track in the story. I really like Zephaniah because it's poetic. It's got prophetic hyperbole in it. It's got all those wonderful components, but it also is... You can really follow cleanly through these three chapters what the problem is, what the woe is, the denouncement is, the judgment is. And then God even goes on to explain why, why he's even doing it, and what the result's going to be. And we're not done yet because we've got it. What part are we missing still, Brent? We've got to have something, every prophet. Hope. We've got to have some hopes. That must be coming here somewhere. doesn't sound like it. It's been pretty bleak up to this point, but we'll see. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will sing to, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and, re- and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. And so Zephaniah ends with that section on hope. And you walk through this whole little three chapters and you see that whole process. 
here's the problem. You, you guys, your idolatry and your leadership is leading you to treat people unjustly. And I, and I hope that you repent and come back to your senses because what waits, chapter two, what waits on your doorstep is judgment. And it's going to fall on Philistia, and it's going to fall on Moab, and it's going to fall on Ammon, and it's going to fall on Cush, and it's going to fall on even Assyria, and it's going to fall on you. And I, I thought that if I had it fall on all those other nations that you would repent, but you're not going to. And so I'm going to use this destruction and I'm going to use this judgment to purge and purify who you are because what waits on the other side of this, and this is so important to me, is all of this hope, all of this restoration, my people remembering the plot of the story. The prophets are not just books of depressive woe. I say that right before next week when we do Second Isaiah, one of the most depressing sections of the prophets. But uh, it's not all just darkness. It's darkness that has a redemptive purpose to it. Yes, there's destruction. Yes, God's going to make all things right. But he is going to make all things right, and it is going to be for a purpose. And so uh, Zephaniah ends up being a short little prophet that I just love. You get to see the whole process at work in the book. So You know, thinking about that, that part where they're seeing the other nations fall around them, like being in Israel and seeing how close everything is together. I can imagine if not directly, they at least have people on the lookout who are watching the armies of Babylon literally sweep through the land. Absolutely. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) here it comes. Absolutely. And yet they, yeah, we're going to see later in the next section of prophets, they stand and fight, even as Jeremiah says, don't fight. This is not going to end well for you. Like, the gavel has been slammed. It's too late. At that point, it's going to be too late for repentance. It's too late for shuva. Don't try to resist this, and they're still going to resist, which is funny to think about. But at the same time, I guess if I had all these crazy stories, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, and my history, uh, maybe I would think, yeah strong dose of patriotism, strong dose of all that stuff that they probably carry with them, like a lot of us carry with us. I can imagine them saying, not us, maybe Assyria, that makes sense. Maybe, maybe Cush, maybe Moab, of course, but not us. And uh, that's going to be a hard thing for them to come to grips with. But you're right, so close. It's not like they don't know what's happening all around them, but... That's the history. All right. Well, if you live on the Palouse, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. You can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. Of course, you can find um, cool links and other stuff for Marty on our Baymont Discipleship Facebook page. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.